and welcome to Here Be Media. I am that which lies awake at the edge of the galaxy and strikes at you through the Force. And I am joined by Frank. Frank, how are you doing? Hello, Leon. I... I am that which is a horrible <laughs> war crime, which is never clear, and, it's, and it shows up at the 11th hour to solve something. Ooh. So I don't know if... if... If I can have you on this podcast, if, if, if that's what you're... Okay. Well, anyway, it's... Uh, we already... Uh, well, the title probably already spoiled it to, for people, but it's... Uh, other than that, we are talking about Knights of the Old Republic, both one and two. Yes. Um, I, I also make a quick note, since, you know, it's the start of the recording session. We want to make this a single episode. We will see... As the, as the episode develops, because there is a lot, you know, Star Wars, heroes, Bioware, Joseph Campbell, light side, dark side, more moral philosophy. You know, it's it's going to be fun. Yeah, definitely. Like Frank said, there's a lot to potentially get into. And there's also the hubris on our side that we are now <laughs> cramming two whole games into um, into one episode. So, right for a second see how one. That goes. Humble office, isn't it? Yes, for the third episode, we will do three. Ga- no, that, that no, um, tempting, but no. Um, other than that, so yeah, uh, please be warned. I'm sorry if the structure of the episodes maybe ends up being kind of weird because of that. I don't think it will be, but yeah, just a friendly warning. It, uh, it might be slightly confusing. Yeah, because it's of, it's gonna be a lot, and because of external decisions made later after the recording of this episode, <laughs> so it will be a surprise. Think of it like that. Go on this adventure with us. So, Frank already mentioned uh, Joseph Campbell. This is another note before we begin. This uh, this recording or this episode will be slightly influenced by the by the work that influenced Star Wars. We are of the opinion that the crucial influence to Star Wars, uh, besides Dune and Flash Gordon, is the work of Joseph Campbell, uh, the hero of A Thousand Faces, or with A Thousand Faces. I'm sorry. I don't know. <laughs> well, anyway, if you Google Joseph Campbell, you will figure it out yourselves quite easily. Um, this, this book, oh boy, is written in 1945, and... Well, it has a lot of baggage that you might expect from a book or a essay. I'm not quite sure what it is. I believe the term that we settled on is essay, but yeah. Mm, a, mm, in my humble opinion, I don't like strict permeable borders for uh, essays, but the collection of 330 something pages, I don't know if you should call it an essay because the structure of the argumentation is in my humble opinion quite speculative <laughs> i am not the only one with this opinion there's a lot of uh, modern contemporary academia that just renounces joseph campbell's argumentation uh, if you can even call it that yeah it's uh but, but regardless because of that it still remains a influential work whether we like that or not it is still interesting to look at because of its influence it became this cultural meme, if you will, uh, not necessarily meme in the contemporary sense, but in the more classical sense of the word. 
it's uh, it influenced Western's media's perception. It influenced uh, production houses such as Disney. I would argue. Yeah. Uh, we will get into that even as well. I think. I hope. I mean, Bioware. It, yes. Uh, once again, Bioware will get into that hopefully as well. <laughs> we will. We will see. But uh, you might be uh, wondering, oh, why is Joseph Campbell mentioned so much? And to help with that, I would humbly suggest a amazing video essay by Noah Caldwell Gervais on Coder 1 and Coder 2. And he goes into amazing detail and has a way better understanding of Joseph Campbell's work because he was required to teach that book or explain <laughs> the influence of the book to high schoolers in the United States where that's where the hero uh, the hero's journey or the um the hero with a thousand faces is still on a pedestal yeah not once again for those who spend more time with literary fiction and likewise stuff sorry that's not a very professional terminology but <laughs> i kind of want to move on now uh yeah. it is still you know once again it is still a very influential work and therefore you must be aware of it um, according to their curriculum but yeah. that's beside the point uh, I would humbly recommend watching that video essay it's quite long but if you're interested in getting all the nuances regarding Joseph Campbell's work and Star Wars there's no better simply there's no better uh, place you can go to than watching that video essay yeah. which is funny because it has over 300,000 views and <laughs> we don't have over 300,000 views this, <laughs> so we are like uh, promoting a thing that is has a lot more viewers than us, but never mind. It is just as a courtesy to make uh, to get some additional lexicon, if you will, if if I'm allowed to say that pretentiously. <laughs> yeah, it's a, a way to connect with this other, you know, scholarship and understanding of what this book is and its influence. Because of course we're going to touch a bit on that, but not as in depth. Because you know we're we're not scholars of that and not cultural scholars in that particular way about myths and, and stories and folklore that you know it's just for very quick reference that it, it's this idea of the, the hero's journey as a sort of common repetition which is sort of inherent in humanity and it's the same story again and again and it, it's connected to Carl Jung's idea of the collective unconscious as you know something that drives or is a part of humanity and it's you can you can see some of the problems that that idea brings up in terms of orientalism and the unification of these various stories environments and peoples and places so it's yeah it, it's got some interesting themes if, if you take it very you know uh, literally and very down to earth as like a storytelling a motif, but I've I've always been or lately as a become better scholar, uh, been of the understanding that you know it's it's rather the other way around. It's like oh why are these stories also similar and not like oh these stories are also similar because X Y or Z and it's like understanding the the causation that it goes the other way around. It's like what similar conditions. And other similar realities and certain, you know, material conditions led to such similar stories or similar things. And I also want to very briefly mention before handing it back to you, Leon, that uh, we're talking about Joseph Campbell and not not John W. Campbell, um, the latter, which is uh, a much worse person and is the 
uh, or was uh, science fiction or like astounding science fiction magazine which was a pop magazine in the early 20th century and he was very 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 racist openly so um he was very much a big defender of the vietnam war and you know turned down a lot of good authors and you know black authors like samuel delaney and was just a horrible person all around not to say that joseph campbell was great uh, as a person but john w campbell was infinitely worse uh, if we can uh, you know, quantify that, but just for reference, because you know, uh, I got confused as well, and it's like, okay, uh, they are different people, right? Right? Oh, okay, good. I believe even uh, Star Trek: Deep Space Nine, which is an interesting piece of fiction, which will become obvious later, <laughs> but it, they had an opus episode on their uh, captain going back in time or having some kind of vision back in time. And that was based on John Campbell, even. So if you're interested in getting a grasp of that, and you want to do it through fiction, I can humbly recommend that episode. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's you can just watch it without understanding Star Trek. It's pretty good. Yeah, um, it's representative that, of him. Yeah, I just want to say, like, personally, uh, in order to get to know us a little bit better, maybe it, I am of the humble opinion that the type of unification that Joseph, Joseph, not John, Joseph Campbell uh, applies in his work, in his quote-unquote essay, is uh, I, I love unity as a concept, <laughs> but to unify cultures in just with, in, once again, in my humble opinion, is with severe rudeness and grossness, uh, just smashing all kinds of mythological uh, cultural stories together and saying like you're all one story and this one story is called the monomyth because all mythical stories are the same I'm like they clearly are not uh, yeah. if you want to get like if you just look want to look at the, the creation the creation process of epics is oh boy uh, that is so <laughs> hyper specific and um, subjected to the times that they were created in once again, if you want to look at the work of Virgil, maybe one of the most renowned epic creators of all time in Rome, uh, if you look at the political interest of Virgil's work uh, for August, Augustus, I believe, and like con continuously uses the past to justify the presence or as God's will or as sanctified or whatever, it's it, the creation of myth and epic is uh, such a deeply not only political but cultural process that cannot just simply be smacked together and say <clears throat> there's the monomyth now and that's all we need to worry about and there are slight variations that I point out during my essay which is what Joseph Campbell tries to do and th that's just I am very vehemently opposed to any such attempt from the get-go let alone your execution of it which is in my opinion poor um, yes I'm also not a Carl Jungian in any way, shape, or form. I, who, hmm, I'm not going to open that can of worms this episode. I'm sorry if you were hoping for that. Uh, if Frank wants to say something about it, I will very patiently listen. I just know that if I also have to talk about Jung, we will not get anything done this episode. So, yeah. <laughs> I just want <laughs> to really briefly sorry. mention that. There's already a lot on our plate. I, I will mix up maybe, because it's, it's rightfully that you pointed out, because 
I mix up the hero's journey with the hero of a thousand faces uh, because once again uh, the the glaring resemblance between the two works or the name alone is so similar yeah if I'm not uh, mistaken I think the hero's journey is effectively like the derived concept from the yes. book and the idea of the hero of a thousand faces is this yep. common hero hero's journey yes I believe so as well uh, based on what I've heard people say who know more about the hero of a thousand faces than I do Mm -hmm. um, it, so this is what we call uh, this is what Joseph Campbell calls, we don't, but if we refer to it uh, <laughs> this is what the monomyth is it is this very loosely uh, X amount of step program that Joseph Campbell sketched out and this is something that the creator of Star Wars, George Lucas has read and the similarities are glaringly obvious uh, I believe there's even a modern uh, uh, edition of The Hero of a Thousand Faces with quotes from George Lucas on the cover jacket really? I'm, don't quote me on that but I believe so and he openly has stated his uh, him reading Hero of the Thousand Faces uh, <laughs> yeah Hero with a Thousand Faces sorry and has uh, admitted his, his influence by it uh, that and Dune and Flash Gordon were like the three parents of Star Wars in George Lucas' mind, I believe. Uh, once again, I'm not necessarily uh, interested in talking about George Lucas, much more so about these inter uh, interesting additions to the Star Wars franchise. For multiple reasons, but we do need to talk a bit about George Lucas' process with Star Wars, because one game that we are going to talk about Knights of the Old Republic 1 made by Bioware Corp nowadays Bioware a <laughs> Canadian video game company started by doctors I believe not important just a fun detail it's um, it's very true to what we would say is a Joseph Campbell's idea of a hero's journey and mo more so George Lucas's interpretation of the hero's journey described in The Hero of a Thousand Faces. So once again, when I say hero's journey, we are mostly, or at least I am, mostly talking yes, about likewise. Campbell's work because this Hero of a Thousand Faces describes the hero's journey. That's what the step program of Joseph Campbell is trying to illustrate. So Goder 1 is made by, like I said, Bioware. And it's interesting because now we want to talk about Bioware as well, maybe as a gaming studio, because they're very interesting. And we have, <laughs> the idea is that we might talk a little bit about Bioware, but we're gonna save that for a different episode. Maybe just a simple episode about Bioware because sure. they are very interesting and hold a noteworthy place within uh, or at least the process of the studio is a very interesting process within the video game industry. Yeah. And because they went from hardcore RPGs uh, like Baldur's Gate. I don't know if you're familiar with that. I am. But I didn't know there was them. I believe so. Um, or at least a lot of people have worked on it um, and done mm. working for Bioware. It's uh, it's interesting. And then they, <laughs> then they went on to make a couple other uh, RPGs and then this one being Coda 1 my apologies 
Knights of the Old Republic one being this remarkable turning point in but not entirely but it started the process yeah. of what Bioware would turn into and then what Bioware turned into also has happened in the past because nowadays Bioware is beneath a lot of people's notice except for the two uh, hardcore fans having franchises <laughs> Bio, uh, Bioware's Mass Effect and Bioware's Dragon Age which has like I said a very dedicated fan base and is what keeping uh, Bioware afloat Bioware recently as time of the recording the most recent game that they released I mean well technically it's the Mass Effect remaster but yes. after that uh, but as a new IP <laughs> as a new game not a new IP what did happen to be a new IP was uh, Anthem which didn't succeed oh. I believe um, it's even it's failure even was only overshadowed by Fallout 67 I believe 76, 76. sorry yeah sorry <laughs> um, it's it's interesting but once again th there's a lot of interesting things to say we're probably going to talk about Bioware another time though uh, I just wanted to give you like a very glossary sense of how I see Bioware's development because we might make loose references to that throughout the episode I'll make a quick parenthesis as I very briefly uh, Google uh <laughs> Bioware games. There's a lot of games that were cancelled. Oh yeah. Which is uh huh. Tells you something. Anyway, moving on. I wonder by who. Which notoriously horrendous parent company could could have had something to do with that. I wonder. <laughs> anyway. <clears throat> so Knights of the Old Republic one is a story about well, what is it about? It's about a Jedi, I guess, as most Star Wars stories are, I suppose. Not so much nowadays, maybe, but back then it was unthinkable not to put a Jedi into your uh, into your Star Wars product, I suppose. It was created during the heyday of the prequels, um, also George Lucas movies that received mixed acclaim, let's just say that. Mm -hmm. It's interesting, I guess, as as a point in time in movie making history, but um, it's it's abundant. It's over zealous use of CGI is well known and well so well known that I don't really want to spend any time on it. But to give you a setting in which this game was released, it was a different Star Wars. It just simply was a different different Star Wars than we have now. What we associate now with Star Wars is, uh, besides racism, of its fans, hmm. it's um, it's this scatterless, the scatterbrained, um, broken narrative, with uh, the typical unimaginative pro properties and handling of Disney that you have grown to expect from that. Yeah. Uh, once again, if you're a fan of ones of Marvel or Star Wars nowadays, still, that's totally fine i'm not making fun of you i'm not interested in doing that in any meaningful way it's just the sequel trilogy is what it has finished for a while now and also had a lot of um dubious uh how do i say this responses and yes i myself am not a fan of the sequel trilogy it's uh, yeah. it's not what I expected from it was 
they didn't commit to any ideas or themes or and they, they reused a bunch of stuff once again not important very well documented just wanted to give a quick uh, indication of how I feel about the Star Wars franchise as is. Yeah. Luckily, we don't have to worry too much about that because <laughs> we're going to go back in time and talk. Um, where, what year was Cotter One released? Uh, North uh, 2003. 2003. And 2 was 2005, I believe. Uh, let's find out because it's not Bioware so game. I should have looked this up <laughs> beforehand. My apologies. Uh, it's 2005, yeah. Yes, Late 2004, right. early 2005. And the year after that is when Revenge of the Sith dropped, I believe. I'm not quite sure. But anyway, I think this so. is... Yeah, right. Coder 2 and the Sith, Revenge of the Sith is both dropping in close proximity to each other. Is um, just like peak, like peak edginess, I believe, for the Star Wars franchise as a whole. <laughs> it is uh, turning a very dark page with both those products, I would say, but neither there's neither here nor there. Uh, so anyway, as I was trying to say, Knights of the Old Republic 1 is a story about... Oh, so sorry, once again, interrupting myself, but uh, we're just going to start with spoilers right yeah. away, I would think. Once again, game from 2003. So you've had... Come on. Come on now. You had 17 years. Uh, Nine, 19 oh christ that's sorry that just made me feel really old i'm so sorry for the listeners <laughs> sorry. 19 years huh anyway regardless not important uh 19 years ago so yeah you had enough sales enough uh opportunities to play the game if you wanted to <laughs> to watch a playthrough to do whatever really so we're just going to start with spoilers from the get-go i'm so sorry if that bothers you but um once again, we can't talk about it without doing this. Yes, it's yeah. It, it would take too much time, and it is um, it is an interesting property within the Star Wars franchise because it embodies yeah. the Star Wars spirit so well, and we will get into yeah. the finer points of that. But it is a story about this Jedi Knight which for, has forgotten that he's a Jedi Knight. Or was he a Jedi Knight? Ooh, question mark. Um, it's, <laughs> it's, an, it's an interesting journey, not so much from an RPG standpoint, other than the relationships <laughs> aspects of it, which is what, once yeah. again, linking it to Bioware, is going to be a hallmark of that studio going forth from Knights of the Old Republic 1. Yes. It is the... Role playing is then the relationships that you form with the crewmates, the party companions, the essentially the NPCs that accompany you through your hero's journey. Drink. Um, it's hey. <laughs> it's gonna, gonna say that a lot. It's uh, and it, it it hits a lot of the beats that once again might not be super familiar with, but it hits a lot of the generic Western hero's journey story beats that you're going to expect the beauty here is that even though you might not be familiar with joseph campbell's work which lucky you um you still might <laughs> recognize a lot because it is such a uh it has such a towering cultural influence on western fiction whether or not that is justified once again already made that opinion quite clear i think <laughs> but it uh you might simply recognize a bunch of it 
because it is such uh, it is such an influential work and the story is about <laughs> the story really hopes really deeply hopes that you have never played never nights winter uh never winter nights one which is <laughs> which is a game about an, an ancient civilization that's much more powerful leaving traces around the galaxy and then suddenly disappearing which then oh, <laughs> right the precursor story so Knights of the Old Republic <laughs> is essentially about a uh, force user, Jedi Knight, whatever you want to call it, that has forgotten that they are and has to rediscover it. So that's a good mechanical excuse to work your way up the ladder of abilities and f uh, force powers in this case. Yeah. Throughout this journey, you have to collect maps from a precursor <laughs> race that has disappeared all of a sudden. and. These maps will lead you to where the big bad guy is because you ain't the par portion of your memory that you have forgotten and you have forgotten that you have forgotten it. So you don't know <laughs> who you are or who you were. And you go through this story, uh, picking up the pieces, <laughs> revisiting the locations of those maps that you have before. And well, this is a classic sci-fi trope, right? Um, the precursor race <laughs> it has left trails, little breadcrumbs uh, throughout <laughs> throughout uh, society or like throughout locations within worlds and they just retrace in order to get somewhere. Um, it is so Bioware that they, despite they assuming that you never played Never, never Winter Nights, they just do it again in Mass Effect, so... Um, yes, right? they do. <laughs> uh, it's not so much that they have to pick up the pieces, even though there's some of that in Mass Effect, but there's a precursor race that mysteriously disappeared, and that's the central mystery of the mega plot, if you will, of those games. Until it's too late. Anyway, sorry for the spoiler for Mass Effect, but it's whatever. Um, <laughs> other than that... It's so it's a very bare bones structure of storytelling, as in this is the setting of the Jedi Knight that doesn't remember that he was Jedi Knight, and um, th this is what you are set out to do. And collecting maps is not that interesting, but what then Bioware does is making you collect those maps with interesting characters, and this is of course one of the yeah. core strengths of Bioware, and um, it, it has this. Ooh, I don't know if I want to draw this comparison, but this Persona-esque friend simulator element going on. Uh, I, I'm sorry if it's condescending. I don't mean it as such. But it is... Uh, it, it's a different flavor, of course. Totally different. I mean, it's a, it's definitely a, a good companion system. It's like these people exist. They have a modicum of personality, of desires and motivations even if they kind of get annihilated by your will, um, which uh, is more interestingly explored in KOTOR 2, but in varied ways. Um, but it's... Yeah, it's it's better than... I know, I've just been thinking about it a lot, how it's so much better than any companion system in Skyrim, oh, for example, yeah. where there's no companion system. Uh, there's anyway, just an NPC following you system. I am sworn to carry your burdens. Indeed. Yeah. Uh, it's it's too obvious. I'm sorry. Low hanging no, fruit no, no. and all that. 
uh, I'm happy that you picked that example because once again that is a gigantuan <laughs> game within the ecosystem of gaming that still somehow is getting yeah. new releases anyway doesn't matter but <laughs> somehow, somehow. Um, but the thing about KOTOR both 1 and 2 is that the relationship that you have with these NPCs companions and characters is one of the most interesting aspects of it that's like Sure, you're important and you're the hero, but these characters, how you relate to them, how you help them, yeah, you mostly help them or do stuff for them, is kind of the crucial turning point or turning points for them and their own stories. And that continues in both one and two in different ways. And... Not always good turning points in one very particular case that I... Oh, that is so interesting. But uh, okay, we will get into that a little <laughs> bit later. But but that also shows that. Uh, oh, I I I'm not sure which one you're thinking of, but I'm excited Tempest. to hear it. But oh, of course, yeah, that 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 was that's interesting. They they do a lot of them, but the thing is that uh, that shows up again in Bioware stories and in a good way. I think like that shows up in Dragon Age in the way that you can have relationship with these characters, like, very openly so, more than, well, Mass Effect you do, but in Dragon Age it feels more open or in a bigger variety of ways, and in Mass Effect as well, when it's a lot about these connections that you establish with these different characters, and have these, you know, relationships, and they're they're allies or not, and you do their own missions, and it sort of fleshes out not just your character, the relationship that your character has with them, and what shape that takes. And that is varied, of course, in, in connection with the alignment system, which works well in Star Wars because it's already in place, um, which then gets sort of reshaped by, well, kind of by both games, but more by the second one into what be, what does it mean to be on the light side? What does it mean to be on the dark side? What does it mean to be gray? Uh, but regardless of all that, uh, what is it, what makes these games interesting and what makes them stand out today is these relationships between the main character and these secondary characters, which are just as important. And I feel like, without spoiling too much, that can be really distinct when you think about something like what happens at the end of Mass Effect 2. And if you know, you know. But if you don't, that relationship is crucial to the ending of that game. Which, of course, can be non-canon given the existence of the third (laughs) game. But it, those relationships have a lot of weight by the end of that game. Both in a mechanical and a narrative way, I would say. Precisely. And I think that's what makes it stand out. And it happens verily in these two games. Where, you know effectively your alignment will affect those of your character or the, of your party um, the second one. mostly save for a few exceptions where it doesn't really but mostly yeah it will it will change them irrevocably i'd rather say yeah in the second one definitely more so it's incorporated in a more mechanical way in which their yes. their moral alignments which we have to uh emphasize that according to the monomyth and the uh, Star Wars in general, the moral alignment is quite clear and binary. It is 
in Bioware terms. Uh, also in Bioware terms as well, yes. It's um, once again, Bioware has made exceptions to this rule, mainly the Dragon Age franchise. If you want to look at Bioware games post um, Knights of the Old Republic, I never played Jade Empire, so yes. I don't, I can't talk about that game. But that's a game that Bioware released. <laughs> uh, never played it. I'm sorry. So I can't uh, talk about that. But and, and nobody is really talking about that game still. So uh, <laughs> I'm just gonna move on. <laughs> it's. Uh, and so I hope it's justified for me not bringing up that game. That's all I'm trying to say with that. It is. Um, yeah. Yeah. So the moral <laughs> element within Knights of the Old Republic one, and like you very rightfully point out, consequently persists throughout Bioware games, uh, especially the Mass Effect franchise. It's very dualistic. It's either light side, yes. serenity, goodness, quote unquote. I'm going to talk about goodness hopefully a little bit later as well and it's more ethical moral philosophical implications mixed with uh, <laughs> how narratively to execute those elements within the story and yeah uh, you know the dark side the bad people the who oh boy um who's who are morally quite <laughs> whose moral ph philosophy is quite fascistic in his nature might makes right um uh, they even give this succinct what Bioware does do really well maybe accidentally, maybe not, I don't know but give very succinct summaries of these ideologies so to get into the game it uh, presents you when your character is learning how to be a Jedi again, with the Jedi Code, which is a new addition to the Spectrum of the Jedi that was previously established in both original trilogy and sequel to, uh, prequel trilogy it, it gives you this mantra of the Jedi which is roughly along the lines of, I, mean, I need to find peace, and through peace I find serenity, From through serenity I find uh, this transcendental property in which we can, as, as Western people, I suppose, we can recognize what <laughs> a lot of Western people think Buddhist philosophy is, this monastic attitude towards, not just maybe Buddhist, yeah. I think that's, I think that's a, lot of, a lot of Western people, ignorant Western people would think of at first, but one could also argue that this is uh, more of like a, a Christian monk type living who do not necessarily always use the word or terminology of uh, trans transcendence, but do live this secluded spiritual life, if you will. And this is intrinsically linked into the imagery of the Jedi. And this game sets out, and I think to its game's credits, does give a very once again succinct uh simple little summary code of how the jedi operate and reflects in a couple of lines the core philosophies of what the jedi is and how the jedi should act and they also do this for the sith the bad people in the <laughs> sorry but it's kind of how the monomyth demands you to think about um you have the hero, which is in doubt already by divine goodness. And he everything that the hero therefore faces because the hero is this agent of goodness, of divinity, of so forth. And uh, therefore anything that the hero faces is bad because it cannot be anything else within this dualistic perspective. And which is important to uh, understand because Coder too, 
uh, Knights of the Old Republic 2 says fuck you to all of that and does something totally different yes. so and a lot better yes but it can do it can be so much better because Knights of the Old Republic 1 is such a loyal and tried and true reinterpretation of Star Wars of monomyth <laughs> and it's, it's true. uh once again obsidian so the the production house that made Knights of the Old Republic 2 is called Obsidian and Obsidian Bioware are very interesting um, studios both both process wise and the history <laughs> of those uh, production houses or those uh, game development studios I should call them but also yeah. um, if you look at what kind of games they make and how people talk about those games they they are they're not this uh they're not the flip side of the coin but do exist in a f <laughs> there's a funny relation between the two games and their flagship products if you want to call them that they're 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 <laughs> most well-known games you might know obsidian from yeah. uh, fallout new vegas a uh a game that still stands on such a tremendous pedestal by the way people talk about it yeah. not entirely undeserved and we will probably talk about new fallout new vegas some points everything that talks about video games has to talk about Fallout New Vegas at some point I feel or at least about the Fallout franchise it's true <laughs> it's uh well yeah. <laughs> need to fill in that quota so uh, it's uh it's it's a trial of passage really if anything but other than that it's yeah so that's uh, something you might know uh, Obsidian from once again uh, well actually this it's, this isn't the game that came right after Fallout New Vegas no wait no, that came in 2010, I believe, Fallout New Vegas. Not, uh, yeah. yeah, I think so. But it's five years, but I think Fallout New Vegas might have something to thank from the production of Knights of the Republic 2, because it is, mm. um, it's, its execution of certain philosophies and its understanding of certain philosophies that is present in Knights of the Old Republic 2 did form the basis, I think, of some um, or that skill in dealing with those philosophies and implementing them does form the basis of certain elements within New Vegas but that that is speculative I don't know if that's true but it, it is interesting to think about which we will do which we will do another time but it's <laughs> so having uh, having indicated that that's how morality works in Knights of the Old Republic 1 and how once again Bioware is quite, how do we say, addicted to making you the hero within the monomyth. It is you who rises from the ashes and so forth, and you are valiant, you are good. Or, if you want to be, you are bad and uh, evil, and you become the new Sith Lord, blah, 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 and so forth. And it's bad that <laughs> you're allowed to be bad in a very rudimentary childish almost way yeah it's uh, in the first one it well in the second one it can be so too but it's caricature like it's it's extreme to a point it's like some of the shall we say dark side dialogue is frankly silly like yeah. you you i think at least from some mass effect examples which i can remember like it's it's forceful it's violent it's gruesome but it's not i don't know it doesn't feel as like oh this is evil for evil's sake uh which is kind of a ploy 
anyway, evil it's... has a place within the Star Wars uh, universe because yes. the Sith are not two guys now, one with a breathing problem, one with the aging problem. It is now a whole <laughs> faction of people, and there is a bunch of Sith yeah. force wielders, and they remain um, they remain so uh, true to the aesthetic of the original trilogy, namely that the uh, the Sith, the Sith Empire, as they are called, is essentially just the intergalactic empire of the Knights of the Old Republic, uh, of the uh, original trilogy, not Knights of the Old Republic, but the Sith Empire in the Knights of the Old Republic is the same, essentially, definitely in the aesthetical and philosophical way as the uh, yeah. intergalactic empire in the original trilogy. Only with the exception of that there's more Force users, more white color uh, red color blades that are swooping around and all that stuff so yeah <laughs> there it is there is the marriage of the prequel with the original in a sense that you have this obscene amount of force users in <laughs> knights of the Ult- uh, in uh in the prequel uh movies as in, in comparison to the original trilogy Whereas Force is something mystical and forgotten and you have to reinvent it and so forth and so on. And whereas the prequel is like, oh, this is what the Force is and these are the Jedi and this is how it looks. And that's, that's what Coder 1 does. It's, uh, yeah. Yeah. There is a lot of uh, brightly colored blades waving around or sabers, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, they're integrated, they're present, they're known, they're obvious. And they're institutions. And precisely, they and they act to Coder's credit, I suppose. They do act as such, but not in any very meaningful way. I would say in this, it's there's conflict because conflict needs to be the catalyst for the hero's journey to be completed, and also <laughs> because, well, I suppose you could say that because the Sith Empire is this quasi fascistic uh, in, uh, organization or army, whatever, a faction. Cult. Yeah, well, <laughs> the Sith are a cult and the Sith Empire are not all Sith, but like are also soldiers and so forth. So whatever, yeah. that empire is a fas- uh, quasi-fascistic empire with, uh, and every quasi-fascistic empire is conflict-oriented by its nature. It cannot not be. <laughs> it's, you know, it, and it does also explain that within their mantra, which is like very, it makes use of very forceful language. This, um, I believe the last two lines are like, and now my chains are broken and I'm free. And it's like true victory. I have it up. Do you wanna? <laughs> it's a uh, peace is a lie. <laughs> there is only passion. Through passion, I gain strength. Through strength, I gain power. Through power, I gain victory. Through victory, my chains are broken. The force shall set me free. It's, right. So, the first line. There you go. Um, <laughs> that's that's what I was trying to say in a very roundabout way. Um, so, <laughs> as we progress to uh, the Knights of the Republic One, the main selling point, as we have said a couple times now, are the companion characters, and within the dynamic of the companion characters. We see a new strength being added into the Star Wars franchise, and the new strength is dialogue. People now do not yeah. talk at eighth grader level English. 
it is um i'm so sorry it's fine by the way it's whatever the original trilogy i like the original trilogy but let's not pretend that it is uh once again star wars's strength has always been its iconography not its dialogue it's 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 the True. fiction what it shows you not what it tells you you have some pretty interesting set pieces and you also have good dialogue yes, i think the dialogues does yet take another um improvement or another quality step if you will with knights of knights of the old republic 2 oh naturally but it is still bioware is still competent enough and has uh enough of a poetical grip on the english language if you want to say it as such uh to make this journey and the dialogue pleasant because if you want to get to know all your characters and uh the if you want to make the player the uh the person the person that plays the game want to make them interact with your companions that you put so much time and effort in then it is a, a very good idea to have great voice acting which the game does deliver yeah and b have them have those voice actors say at least somewhat interesting stuff or at least have a good grasp on how to sound interesting and both games succeed in that once again knights of the republic 2 yep. maybe a bit more so even though knights of the old republic 2 does tend towards the overly dramatic at times it's a bit <laughs> it's a very much a product of its time which i don't know if i should necessarily say that because its relevancy is still well uh, it's still relevant today period and yeah but it that's something new to star wars is what i'm trying to say i think like in terms of the dialogue and you know bringing it together with this question the morality in knights of the old republic one it's a binary you can be great amazing the hero the jedi or you can be the monster the fascist <laughs> the sith the dark jedi uh, the violent, destroying, despoiling conqueror. But both great. Um, you're great at either. <laughs> which oh yeah, you're you're a, an undisputable champion in either of them. Which does uh, align to the hero's journey, only it's inverted a little bit, like morality wise. But both the hero's journey is, despite Joseph Campbell constantly saying that it's good, it's great, it's whatever. Y- uh, the steps that re- that the character takes. In Kodra One, even if they are evil, are still in succinct with the, the monomyth, uh, the monomyth, monomythical steps. So you are still great. It, the the monomyth is still fulfilled, just not in the classical sense. So this is, uh, and this is also the most interesting character that you can be if you want to stay true to the monomyth, because your character holds the potential for both good and evil with crackling tension. In, in their hand as you as you uh, move your way through the uh, through the story through the game and here is then a problem because the claim the game claims to have the replayability but then if you have to be evil it is not interesting as something Frank said very correctly the evilness or the evil route in this game is very boring um, or at least within Bioware games, a lot of people tend to be good and pick the light side path, which is fine. 
but people generally there's this disposition that people don't like to be mean within Bioware games because it just makes you feel <laughs> bad and that's understandable yeah. <laughs> because you are bad <laughs> but it takes a certain kind of disposition to be interested in that I would argue and sadly there's there's only like a handful of games that I would argue that do badness well it is always drawn in the comical mm. sense of aha your stuff is mine now and I I essentially present with the bad guy choices you essentially present the shortcut option within video games that you don't <laughs> have to help out people you can just get what you want and go on with the main quest with the juicy part of the game and so forth and that's a very much like I think not a trope maybe but definitely something people well maybe a meme <laughs> if you will in the uh yeah, I can think of a couple examples like that. I would say this is the case for Knights of the, Knights of the Old Republic 1. And yes, we have to... Uh, it's interesting because both are, like I said, both are these fulfillment of the monomyth in the way that you are great yeah. no matter what you pick. And... Yes. But then... And admittedly, this is kind of true to the character's lore. And what do I mean with that? Well, as you find out playing the game, you are a person that has existed in this universe. And, oh boy, are you a person. Um, you're not just a person, actually. You are the person. You are the Luke Skywalker you are. on crack. You are... <laughs> you could crush Palpatine and Luke Skywalker in your palm. It is... You are such a big deal. There's nobody in the entire Knights of the Old Republic timeline, which takes place four thousand years before the original trilogy, that is even close to you, and the and that that is Bioware. I think you are the super it important, hyper competent thing, um, magic, <laughs> the prophet, the chosen, the heralds. It's it, the hero doesn't cut it. Yes, you're the hero of legend. You are the prophet. You are the chosen one above, above all. And that means access to unbelievable power. They do vary with this, I will say. Once again, dipping quite, quite yeah. quickly into other Bioware games. Once again, the protagonist <laughs> of the Mass Effect franchise is called Shepard. And at least Shepard earns their accolades through virtuous and competent behavior. In a sense that they might not be morally yeah. ideal... But they are just a soldier that's really good at shooting stuff, I guess, uh, to True. to get the Americans in. <laughs> and then they also present this, like, uh, well, Shepard, if you want them to be, and if you look at the statistics, I believe Bioware released, like, the statistics for choices that people made for, for Mass Effect. And, like, 90 or 87% was good. Asparagon was the light side of Mass Effect. Wow. Precisely. So this indicates that people don't like... When they revisit the game, they better pick the light side or the Paragon side or the good side again and then just do something different with the characters that they get. Not a lot of people revisit the game and do bad stuff. And so you would think that by creating a good path and a bad path, you would invent, you would invite the player to experience the replayability of the game. But in practice, I don't think this is how things turned out for Bioware. I mean, I think that's almost inherent 
to the ways that you make those kinds of games right where effectively one feels more solid as a story than the other even kotor 2 which is more solidly varied in the ways that it conducts the story in the choices that you make it isn't as obviously binary the choices vary a lot even if and again the binary comes in you're given or taken force points away uh given your choices so it's still binary um the system is still I, binary it's even interesting if... sorry real quick it's just that you no go on um what i think is that obsidian the people who made core 2 were just like mm -hmm. yeah there's a morality system anyway we are going to make an rpg and the morality system is going to go up and down yeah. whatever you like <laughs> but we're going to make you play an rpg and <laughs> because you can almost make every choice you like and the light side there's no uh, but once again we will get into the story a little bit of color too just after <laughs> i revisited the thing that i wanted to say because i will uh, give examples of how <laughs> i mean no no no. i i distracted myself it's not you um i will uh, i will name specific examples within Knights of the republic 2 story to show you what i mean by that they chose to be an rpg despite their predecessor bioware's generic dual, uh, dualistic binary system you are Revan. you turn out to be and Revan is this war criminal uh, a lot of people call people war criminals nowadays within fiction it's fine i don't really care i do like people being maybe a bit more precise and not flippant about it but because it's such a serious thing but uh, Revan is yeah. <laughs> is literally literally a war criminal <laughs> Uh, using unauthorized weaponry to create mass planetary graves. So it doesn't really... <laughs> um, it's, it's funny, because I don't want to get psychoanalytical about this, but in Star Wars, the yeah. original trilogy, the war crime of the Death Star is so... <laughs> is so ideal, because it removes the entire planet and it just leaves an asteroid field. But it doesn't leave anything really. And whereas in the Knights of the Republic 2, we are faced with the consequences of a event called the Mandalorian Wars. Now, you might recognize that name because of the hit, the hit Disney Plus TV show uh, called The Mandalorian. The Mandalorian. <laughs> uh, or as I like to call it, Grogu Season 1. And it's, hey. <laughs> it's we all know who carries that franchise anyway it's that's all beside the point but it is the shockingness is that Alderaan the planet in the original trilogy is immediately removed and we are not only the people who knew it and had a link to that planet and you know have something have some relation to it are allowed to reminisce in memory but there is no physical ceremony to be had for this because there's no there's no grave there's no physical ceremony that we understand <laughs> as people to uh once again being it a monument being it a grave being it whatever you can build a monument on a different planet i suppose but initially i mean supposedly you could build a monument at around the coordinates this is all post 
this is all something that we have to invent and is not similar to what we know the grieving process to look like. Yes. And we are, as humans, used to go to these sites, these, uh, like the, the region of Verdun, for instance, to, rem to reminisce about the World War. Uh, we don't have that <laughs> with, the, with the Death Star in the original trilogy, is what I'm trying to say. We do have that now yeah. in the events of the Mandalorian Wars, in which Revan was lead a group of Jedi that split off from the Jedi Order because there was this war raging with the Galactic Republic and the Mandalorians. The Mandalorians were not just sparse little bounty hunters, they were a force to be reckoned with. And they conquered system after system and where these they, they, they are a warrior cult essentially and it's it's this <laughs> i don't know what what would could there be what do you think is there like an a comparison between real worlds it's like spartan samurai <laughs> yeah it, it, it's in between that like, i think like i think the closest comparison would be like a much more expansionist samurai thing i mean um, they were quite no man well, true, uh, but you know, if if they actually conquered half of Asia, oh, yeah. um, so because yeah, they have. I think that they're more, they're more, they'd be more brutal. But you know, there's a thing about honor, the value of the struggle and the fight, and you know that being important and the process and the thing about honor and what that war and that fight means as a testing of one's own strength, regardless of most of the consequences. Yeah, they do aim for civilian targets, though. <laughs> the Mandalorians. <laughs> they, they do, exactly. Regardless of the consequences uh, of their actions and the war that they're they engaging They identify with. as a weakness of the Republic. And... Exactly. And, which I will also now talk about one of the inter most interesting um, companions, par NPCs, party mates of Knights of the Republic, Knights of the Old Republic 1, which is Kendrus of Clan Ordo which is this wayward Mandalorian, because guess what? The Mandalorians lose because Revan joins the war. They might have won if uh, it was just the Republic, but all of a sudden, uh, these Jedi, which if you had listened to the Witcher <laughs> episode on the left page, you, <laughs> might have, you might know my opinion of the Jedi, which is I'm not against them, but it, we in fiction have a, I have a problem. Not we, I have a problem, and a lot of people might agree with that <laughs> or not, I don't know. But there are certain difficulties, which is not a reason not to do it, but there are certain difficulties when you make this hyper-competent person. And the Jedi is a great example of that, because they are both mentally superior and physically superior, because they have access yes. to the Force. <laughs> the Force is something that Joseph Campbell also describes as, well, as... <laughs> I'm sorry, I'd rather not uh, use his words because uh, they are sexist. Um, <laughs> it's, it's ah. yeah. Oh, he, yeah. Uh, he links, he also like deeply believes in the gender binary system, which once again also links into his binary beliefs of good and evil, probably, but I don't know. I'm not going to make any judgment on that. I'm not familiar enough with his work, and I like to keep it that way. It's, um, he <laughs> says it along the lines of, and I really wish he didn't. But he says something along the lines of like, oh, all that is to be known is the female goddess and the female goddess is the force, essentially, in Star Wars. The female goddess uh, represents all that is known and is to be known. And once again, 
I, I can quote Joseph Campbell, but you will just get more confused. I, I don't want to sound condescending to anyone listening. I don't doubt your intelligence, <laughs> but I don't understand anything the man says. It's, uh, well, I, I happen, I do, but thanks to other people analyzing his work. If I just start talking about female goddesses, you might get a bit confused. Um, I will at least. Yeah, we'd rather talk about something interesting and worthwhile <laughs> than what the whole thing that he yes, meant I... is or isn't. So, yeah, that's why. I will why. talk about the concepts that he will he tries to indicate with his weird little language. I oh, never mind. I'm, I'm sorry. At all times, I must restrain myself, not to just talk about <laughs> Joseph Campbell and how shit that book is, but or that essay, yes. I should say, but. It's um, right. So, and Jedi have access to the Force, and the Mandalorians didn't know how to um, how to respond to that. There is one fun little piece of, of lore that I like to get into, which is that we all know Jedi to be able to block uh, laser bolts because they have a laser sword yes. and whatever I don't know, or late lightsaber, but they can reflect uh, laser weaponry back at, the, at, uh, at people who shoot at them. So um, the Mandalorians simply go back to bullets. And I thought that was so funny. <laughs> it's like this little <laughs> element of like, it reminds me of the space race in the Cold War where Americans in, like spent a lot of money inventing the ballpoint pen whereas the Soviets just yeah. brought pencils. It's, um, it's just a fun little detail about, yeah, what happened to bullets, actually? Why is everything lasers? Huh, I don't know. So, yeah, that's, which is fun because it elaborates on a more realistic, realistic dimension of warfare that is maybe not something you should put into Star Wars. And what Star Wars is and what Star Wars should be is a swamp that I'm not going to get into. But I do want to quickly say that a lot of people might be very well justified in their perception that such elements of realistic warfare should not be inserted into Star Wars, because Star Wars is essentially this wholesome, family-friendly adventure, and which is something that's sure it is. Yeah, and wholesome, friendly, fa- uh, a wholesome, friendly family adventure that is about killing fascists. But uh, which I I'm, I have no <laughs> ironically I don't have an issue with, but it's neither. Uh, I am of the opinion really quickly I will just say that, but your opinion on Star Wars I'm not trying to dismantle it or say you should feel like I feel about Star Wars, but I think Star Wars is so vague because it has this monomythical structure which is so vague, and it it, it only believed in people should defeat their oppressors and that's the only thing I can get from the original which is fine <laughs> but because of that you have this broad galaxy now literally and figuratively where or this broad universe I mean where you can now do anything in I have always preached that you yeah. can do a detective noir story in Star Wars that's fine with me um, I do not believe inherently the Star Wars should be a thing and do I think there are wrong avenues to explore maybe but I'm more interested in a debate on how to explore those avenues. And even though I might not feel a great sense of warmth, when you say, oh, we should make a Star Wars... Uh, uh, I'm blanking on a good example, but like 
Uh, Star Wars. I have a good example for you. A Star Wars David Cage game. <laughs> Cheeky, Frank. Uh, well, once True, again, though. maybe you can take David Cage's design philosophy and make it not shit. You can do something interesting <laughs> with it. Of course. You could do a Star Wars uh, Telltale game. David Cage cannot do it with Star Wars, I think. We will, we will see. Obviously. I don't know. We are... Well, never mind. So returning to... <laughs> I mean, I'd rather be proved wrong, but let's be honest. <laughs> but <laughs> returning to... Uh, so the Mandalorians were beaten, and one of those lost Mandalorians joins your, uh, joins your crew. And you build up this relationship with this uh, Mandalorian called Candorous. And you build up this relationship initially with you, your choices of dialogue, the name of the character that you have given them, uh, given the character, and then that is all obliterated, obliterated because you're Revan. You are the guy who yeah. like <laughs> stomped the Mandalorians into the ground in the, in the war, and in the Mandalorian war. And now we have this, uh, this confrontation with Kanduis, who is even more on board with you now because according to Kandrus's yeah. warrior code, which we try to describe, maybe not as good as we could have, but we try to describe like, okay, this is this, this is like every warrior culture uh, smashed into one. And according to their own warrior culture, that might makes right elements. He's even more on board with you now because wow, you're Revan! <laughs> you're the guy that, that stomped us into the ground. That's impressive. I will totally follow you even more now. And he literally becomes this disciple of Revan in so many ways. True. Which I, I will get into that a bit, a bit later. But then uh, after that, Revan and his apprentice, because there's always two, Revan and Malak, which are the most, which are edgy names, but they are not the worst names. And we will get to that in a bit. Uh, oh, yes, we will. They are, they go off into the galaxy and to the edges of the galaxy, the dark parts or whatever. And then they come back and they are not the same as they were before. And all of a sudden they are now the dark side and they are evil and blah, blah, blah. And it's not very interesting, but they do declare a war on the Republic. And this time the hypocrites, the Jedi do join in. And, and <laughs> eventually uh, Malak, the apprentice of Revan, betrays Revan and he uh, and Revan is captured by the Jedi the Jedi do some very morally questionable stuff but it's all glossed uh, over the, the best way I can phrase it is an MK Ultra procedure right. only successful up to a point they use they collectively use their immense force powers to wipe Revan's memory and they plant him on a ship that is loyal to the Jedi that is credited of defeating Revan, named Bastila Shan. Bastila, Bastila, Bastille. I mean, we'll, we'll use both. Uh, she's the worst. <laughs> anyway, it's uh, and this Jedi who is renowned because she has a certain technical battle meditation. Not important. We're not going to talk about that. But uh, this is this is a big this is a big person now because they she took down the biggest person Revan and and <laughs> the person has to be the biggest person because monomyth regardless 
moving along. <laughs> and you are planted on a ship, a Republican vessel that is uh, commanded, I believe, by Bastilashan. And you don't remember anything. Yes. That's where the game begins. And the events of the game are called the Jedi Civil War, I believe, where Jedi fights Jedi. I think so. And it's referenced in the Kotor 2 as this big war that you fight through in Kotor 1. So once again, still very interesting that the war that you fight in the previous game has a lasting effect on the uh, second game. Not because of your choices, yeah. but because of the things that have happened canonically. And yes. <laughs> it is in interesting to to see that dynamic, because that is the difference between Obsidian and Bioware up to a point, but it's definitely the difference between Knights of the Republic 1 and 2. What I mean by that is that 2 renounces this all-obliterating ego <laughs> egotistical element of Knights of the Republic 1 and the monomyth and it tells you over and over and over and over again that small choices can have big consequences Coder 2 does that I mean and yes <laughs> oh hmm okay so essentially at the end of Knights of the Republic 1 you have this operatic confrontation with your previous uh, apprentice Malik who has now become the new not Darth Vader, and you beat him. Of course you do. <laughs> Easily so. It's a, it's quite an... Never mind. At this point in the game, it's a joke. Precisely. And because you are Revan Reborn, and before, before Revan Reborn, nobody is anything. And <laughs> it's sad, but true. <laughs> and don't talk to me about the, 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 the extended universe books of Revan's journey into the... Never mind. Don't... We are just going to focus on the, what these two games give us. I am sadly aware yes. of the extended canon to a to such a degree that if you have time, I would like to like play a little game where I will give you an example of something that's canon and something that's or was once upon a time canon and I made up and see if you can figure it out. Oh, I want to play that game. It's, we will talk I about. We'll find the time for we it. Will, we will talk about it. Uh, definitely. It'll be Star Wars or Farce Wars. It's, uh, well, anyway. And you beat Malak. Of course you do. And Malak then is all but crying at your feet, uh, saying, oh, you were always better than me. Oh, ah, uh, hmm. <laughs> uh, uh, whatever. I don't know. It's, it's, <laughs> yeah, well, it is everything. It's KOTOR 1. It is everything the monomythical story uh, wants you to be. And you can either ben, be evil and be the new Sith Lord and take Malak's place which was always yours to begin with, as Malik even professes at your feet. And then, or you can be the prodigal knight and be the light side again. And this is the canonical ending. Canonically, also, yeah. Revan is uh, a guy, even though you can luckily choose to be uh, also a woman if you want to. Because it's it tries to be an RPG now and then. Yeah, I think in the... I might be mistaken, but... Quick parentheses... And we might get into that. We'll see. Knights of the Old Republic 2 is effectively unfinished. Right. Like a majority of Obsidian games. It's a theme. Uh, it's a theme. Um, and as it stands, the recommended way of playing Cold War 2 is with a mod called the Sith Lords 
restored content mod. Uh, the additions to it, but generally it restores a lot of content which was cut for rushed release uh, and so on. And I believe the mod makes Revan a woman. Huh. Uh, I believe in, this, in the later game, uh, the MMO, the Knights of the Old Republic, Star, um, Revan is a man. Yes, I think so. I think that is the case. But in the, I don't know, at least the way I played it uh, on the restored content, it, it referred to Revan as a woman. Uh, for a variety of reasons. I don't know whether that was why I played it or I chose or did something, but I think that's how it happens. But canonically speaking, taking canonically with, you know, fucking bag of salt, uh, Revan is a man. The Exile, the main character of Knights of the Old Republic 2, is a woman. Yes. Sarah Matrix? Matrix Suri, I believe her name is. Uh, we'll go with exile. <laughs> we will indeed. So both have monikers, Revan and Exile. And what I personally, what I loved when I played those games when I was really, really young, Knights of the Republic One and Two, is that I didn't know if Revan was a man or a woman. I thought it was so cool because Revan is either an average length guy or a tall woman. We don't know which. And <laughs> and of course they had to canonize it because it's Star Wars. And they had to, uh, because uh, Basla and Revan get canonically within the, which is no longer canon, because Disney's acquisition. But before that, canonically, Revan and <laughs> Basla got children together, and those children play a role in the events of the MMO that I just briefly referenced. Ah, uh, yeah, in the, the, the version I played of the Restored Content mod, the... Uh... Revan marries Carthonassi. Oh, interesting. And presumably they have children as well. Carthonassi is not very but interesting. He's not. He's less interesting than the other one uh, in Great Knights voice of the Republic too. Whereas there's a very similar character. Right. What's his name? Uh, the equivalent Carth in the second game. Or... Anton. Anton is more interesting because you know he has story. Yeah. Uh, with Carth kind of doesn't well he's a hero in the war so he's like a less well he's he's a non-force user hero and yes with, in a, on a quest for revenge because revenge yeah, and, i don't know they try to because anton you meet, has a dark past you meet that you meet carf's son in the sith academy and so forth yeah which is so stupid oh boy okay anyway uh, anyway um the point we were making is, um, and I, I'll, I'll just bang this gavel again. Um, I think the point, the problem about the thing being canonical and, and the differences between one and two and, you know, them having to choose that, like, yeah, Revan turned to the light side. Yes, Revan was a man is the issue that, like, you'd have to, you'd, you'd have had to make two different Knights of the Old Republic 2 games. Um, and subsequently, two more games, uh, where one you go via the light side, and another where you go via the dark side. No, so this is really interesting because this is Bioware's struggle going forward. Because Bioware also wanted to make comics, they also want to make. I'm talking about Mass Effect and Dragon Age at this point. They want to write novels, they yeah. want to make comics. They want to make. Uh, uh, they even have an animated short movie for each, I believe. They even have a live-action short film for Dragon Age. I'm not quite sure. With, 
I think I think I've heard of that. That sounds familiar. But I'd argue that's not just the struggle of I think it's mostly the struggle of Bioware, but of other studios that do similar things with morality systems. Right, but it's difficult to make yeah, like an RPG and then makes additional media. Because once again, yeah. in my playthrough I might have killed off of character that plays a uh, a a starring role in this other product that is outside the game. So yeah. there's always this and I'm quasi okay with this because I can accept a franchise that has multi-narratives and I can just yeah. say oh well in this version of it's kind of like comic books like oh in this version like it's just a different universe and where different choices were made and so on and so forth and I <laughs> this is where the problematicness I think of a lot of fandoms as we call them nowadays uh which we mean the collection of fans and i mean fandom is a very old term it's older than joseph campbell is it oh i didn't know that thank you yeah it it, it goes from the the sci-fi time of the 20s and 30s ah. or 10s 20s and 30s and from that sci-fi off john campbell the asshole uh but yeah it's a very old term i'm quite sure i might be mistaken <laughs> but i'm fairly certain of this but the fandoms as they behave nowadays they do a lot of people care about lore which i already only find interesting if i find the <laughs> product being that a video game being that a movie whatever interesting i only want to know mer sure. more about the world if the world has already an interesting story in it otherwise i couldn't care less about lore and it even though i do like lore at times i <laughs> also have slightly an obsessive personality so uh wanting to know everything that's going on <laughs> is something that's deeply ingrained within me but other than that i from a intellectual point of view i do not acknowledge lore and uh canonicity as two things that are crucial to any franchise well-being i think oh, definitely yeah, not. exploring different avenues is something we should kind of let go of and do if it's interesting and i mean i I think like that, the fact that Disney acted very inquisitorially uh, is half positive in a way, and especially the recent movies being, as a trilogy, atrocious, uh, uh, regardless of their individual value. I'm talking about them as a trilogy. As a trilogy, I think they're unambiguously awful and not very coherent. Um, that kind of puts a spin on the fact, like, but there's so much better stuff. Are we supposed to forget all that and leave that behind? And I think Disney being very authoritarian about it kind of put, at least for me, put in check the idea of canonicity. And it's like, so they say so, who cares, really? Because, um, you know, some of the other Star Wars books, and I, I mean, this is hearsay, but con uh, shall we say proximate hearsay from people that I fairly trust and have a good judgment, there is very good Star Wars media of the expanded universe. Help these games, for example. And, like, their annihilation from official canon. It doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. <laughs> it's, it's at most, like, oh, a shame that they're not going to do much more with this story. But, like, is this story less valuable? No. Quite the opposite, really. It, it sort of highlights, like, what could be. And I think Knights of the Old Republic 2 is a brilliant example of what else could be and what I, th this is me personally, I think can be the only positive way for 
Star Wars to go, really. Which is, in a way, that's like, see all this? Is this all really quite good? It's like, is are the Jedi unambiguously great? Is this all we want? Is, like, the lineage, the blah, 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 blah. No, the, the recurrent thing that was reinforced in the ninth movie. And, you know, the, ambigu- the ambiguity that happens in Knights of the Old Republic 2, I think it's its greatest triumph, really. And there are a few uh, chinks in that armor in Knights of the Old Republic 1. Uh, I don't think as intentionally, but uh, I, I gotta quote him, uh, or at least reference him. Jolie Bindo, for example, his story is not quite in the favor of the Jedi. And, you know, pretty much the, the Jedi in general are assholes, even in the first game. Like, Bastila sucks. Uh, and, you know, fucking Vrook. Yes, it's it's interesting because Jolie Bindo is this is the only figure that doesn't really fit into the monomythical uh, s- structure. I would say that yes. the Old Republic is so loyal to, and it it almost it's it's interesting because it's Jolie Bindo follows the Jedi code better than the Jedi order in a certain, in this sort of way. <laughs> Namely, the Jedi yeah. code's ultimate virtue with the Sith, it is strength, obviously, as we already went through. The ultimate virtue of uh, the Jedi code and Jedi path is transcendental knowledge. And it is therefore to make the right decisions, to act correct, and to be this uh, <laughs> almost, I'm going to use a weird word here, but almost this policy maker of goodness. You are yes. <laughs> you get to decide because you you have laid claim to the the, the goddess of knowledge, uh, <laughs> as Joseph Campbell calls it. But once again, <laughs> through the force, which is not a sectarian force, so it doesn't have permeable borders that can be applied to space uh, or time, for that matter. It is this universal entity. So because of that and the knowledge that we have of it we can be all brothers in arms and it's fine we are no longer knights of uh, that that serve a lord or a entity within the world it is this once again very transcendental force energy once again uh, to understand it better (laughs) i'm going to do something (laughs) kind of shitty and (laughs) put frank on the spot and say can you (laughs) think of a synonym for the force within the star wars context oh right (laughs) so that's the answer i hoped you would give because there is no there is no uh name for it other than the force or maybe the energy or whatever because that's how cosmic it is it is this indifferent thing that that sadly has this potentially deterministic effect but because of that and yeah. going to the monomyth it therefore must be good which is weird because bad shit happens and we have this yeah this this theological moral theological problem now like if god is almighty then why badness and it's <laughs> it's this why if the force is everywhere and if the force is good then how so genocide and and coder then just cl- <laughs> takes that question and makes it the 
central beat, the beating heart of what happens in uh, Color 2, which we will get into right, <laughs> right any moment now. I just want to say quickly that yeah. that's, that's <laughs> once again a deep flaw of their interpretation of the mono or like their dedication not interpretation but dedication of the monomyth which then you you walk into that problem this really really old problem <laughs> that we have in fiction and in life as well so anyway yeah i mean i i will reinforce the point that i in in regards to kotor one and even kotor two they don't that question isn't really asked well it's asked in different ways but, you know, there's the whole thing, as, we, as you were mentioning, that, you know, Revan and Malak and a few others went to fight the war that the Jedi, the Jedi Council as an institution refused and told no Jedi should go or could go there. And they did it against their will, against the will of the Council and the judgment of the Council. even. So the, their orders were of passivity and Revan, Malak and others disobeyed them. And, you know, there's a constant reference after the fact that, like, oh, no, they shouldn't have gone. They maybe should have waited or something, whatever. You know, regardless of the what's actually happening, that's the bloody war. Uh, but n there's no one, no one ever asks the question, like, what if the council acted differently? What if, instead of, you know, splintering, they try to act um, in person actively, but try to act, you know, as a unified force and like trying to this is this is sounding weird and is very confusing and I'm not necessarily trying to be moral about it, but if they try to act in the war, if they try to fight it, you know, this is this sounds hypocritical because it kind of is, but morally in war uh, when uh, most literature, media and understanding of the subject effectively judges there is no such thing because it's war. But, um, what would it mean if the Jedi Council had decided to act, and decided to act in a more uniform manner, and it's like, okay, we need to act, let's do this, and there are risks, but they're better than the alternative. Maybe things would have turned out differently. Maybe there wouldn't have been a Jedi Civil War, even if there had been dissidents, had been trauma, had been violence that's happened. Uh... But that question is never asked. Uh, yeah. The council holds on to its supposedly moral high ground and its self-righteousness yeah. it, 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 to the bitter right. end. So it's, they constantly preach this wisdom of action isn't inherently superior to inaction. And um, wrong. Um, <laughs> in this case, in case of war, in case of a lot of people dying, civilians and everything, wrong. Um, <laughs> and like you're these knights, these really super powerful knights that can truly change the tide of the war, but you're decided to not act. And it's like, uh, it's mm, it's so interesting because once again, this idea of uh, action isn't inherently superior to inaction. This is fine for how do I say this uh, on an individual level. Um, once again, I make yes. it quite clear, not just me, but for me, I always, <laughs> I believe in making a clear distinction between morality for you as an individual and judging other individuals and morality for anything larger than individuals. So once yes. again, war is all encompassing 
and inaction with war is you know it's it's difficult because once again looking at this situation where this warrior cult is rampaging across the galaxy according to your own virtues as this Jedi, existential threat yes this this also very immediate and it's this they are so counter opposed to jedi the jedi code that we get rammed into our head over and over throughout playing this game um it's is because it is so they are the mandalorians are so juxtaposed to your code that you could not survive in you cannot both survive so conflict is necessary like or not necessary it is unavoidable with the conflict is already in play <laughs> even if you did nothing and the mandalorians would have won then you know you as jedi you would have been at risk there the conflict with then between jedi and mandalorian is unavoidable and yes <laughs> so i guess they were hoping that the republic would win on their own which if that's your disposition oof um that's i mean okay but they still I mean, they were seeing what was happening and still did fucking nothing. But that's so alien to me, the idea that you hope that other people win wars on their own. And, like, <laughs> once again, maybe that's True. different because the Jedis are aliens, both in the literal and non-literal sense, but <laughs> it doesn't really matter what kind of species they are. They are mostly human, but they are yeah. also other species. And, yeah. but it doesn't matter because the concept of a, a Jedi-ness is so alien, not in their philosophy, but in their spiritual being which is so hyper-spiritual because they have access to uh, the, the force. force. And the Force can apparently influence you. <laughs> like, it's it's drugs drugs times 10. It is this hyper-psychosis you can get entered into because of the influence of the Force. You can see the future. You can see whatever. Like, it's such... Uh, <laughs> go to one. And once again, our boy Candorus... Mandalorian puts it very puts it in this fourth wall breaking type of way like yeah it's the force we're talking about at this point Mara can drop out of the sky and I would shrug because it's the force and the force is so fucking weird it is the deus ex machina yeah. of all deus ex machinas and, and it embraces <laughs> that you know it's like Star Wars at no it point does. does not embrace it except for Coder 2 who Acknowledges because it's the Deus Ex Machina of Deus Ex Machina, it acknowledges the problematic philosophical line of questioning that therefore the Force has, at least to some degree, and I would argue, as the game Coder 2 would, to quite an extensive degree, a deterministic property. And yes. I am already, ooh, ill, hmm, determinism, magical determinism, or in this case, forced determinism. It's magic, let's be honest. Um, so, uh, <laughs> As we finally approach KOTOR 2, we realize 90 minutes later that we probably should make a split here. Yes. <laughs> this, this is the foregone conclusion, um, as uh, we sort of inevitably kind of predicted, and but unfortunately for Leon editing it. So we will see you all very soon as we finally dive into the morality and the more chaos. But I feel like we were fairly comprehensive on Knights of the Old Republic 1 on what happens and, you know, the monomyth. So that's, that was very, I mean, that's going to show up still, but mm. just a good starter. 
and a good bridging point that's as we dive into KOTOR 2 and what what is the force meaning now. <laughs>